The Biden administration recently unveiled the American Jobs Plan, a proposal that would turbocharge the building of major new electricity transmission lines and accelerate expansion and modernization of America's power infrastructure. Can we get it done? Let's find out. Hi, my name is Alana Knopp, senior reporter with New Project Media. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Ken Irvin, a co-leader of Sidley Austin's Global Energy Practice Area Team, who represents clients on a variety of regulatory enforcement, compliance, and transactional matters involving the U.S. wholesale electricity and natural gas markets. Ken has extensive experience representing clients in regulatory and investigations proceedings before the FERC and multiple state energy regulatory agencies. Ken has been frequently recognized as one of the leading lawyers in his field and was recently selected by the National Law Journal for inclusion in the annual list of energy and environmental trailblazers. The recognition honors individuals who have moved the needle and made an impact at the crucial intersection of energy production and the environment. Ken, thanks so much for being here. Alana, thanks for having me in. Um, it's a pleasure to be talking with you again. Really excited to talk with you again as well, Ken. And I guess I'll start out by asking you about the current state of transmission infrastructure today as it pertains to its ability to connect renewables to the grid. Um, that's a great place to start. And as you know, the Biden administration aspires to see us reach a point of decarbonized electric generation by 2035. There's a lot of concern that that may not be attainable, especially if we don't build out the transmission system. If we're going to do offshore wind, for example, more transmission development is necessary. Even taking advantage of what we have here in the Continental 48 for renewable energy, we still need to build out more transmission system. Um, some folks have said doubling the transmission system is one of the most cost-effective ways for us to reach uh, zero carbon. And others, uh, including MIT and Princeton, have found that transmission capacity will need to be tripled by 2050 for the country to realize its net zero emissions economy. That is one of the goals of Mr. Biden. Um, transmission capacity right now is literally hindering the ability to integrate new resources. The queue to add in renewable resources is often long and complicated. The ability to develop new transmission that spans across regions is complicated and, and hard to connect the, the center of the country where you know, conveniently we call it Tornado Alley, so there's a lot of opportunity for wind as well as solar to the load centers that are on the east or west coast. And um, I've seen studies that show most of the renewable energy comes in the middle of the country, but most of the load is on the east or, left, east or west coast of the country. And yet we don't have a transmission network that allows easy connectivity to that. So that's one of the key upgrades, one of the key developments that I think we're gonna have to do if we're gonna realize the decarbonized electric generation and decarbonized transportation goals that this current administration holds. Well, that's a great place to start. And it sounds like we have a lot of work to do. And I'd like to know, do you, do you think it's fair to say that renewables started connecting to the grid 
well before transmission infrastructure came into real focus within the industry. In other words, should the issue of transmission have been addressed by the industry long ago, and can the industry catch up? Well, um, I think a lot of it is driven by economics. Transmission development was a key focus after the Energy Policy Act of 2005, and Congress wrote part of that Energy Policy Act to help incentivize, help empower the development of transmission lines. But the success that was hoped for hasn't really been realized. That act gave FERC what they called backstop authority, but that didn't turn out to be very effective. The act allowed the Department of Energy to identify national energy pathways, transmission pathways that would enjoy a priority of development, but even that hasn't uh, come into much fruition. At the same time, we had the advent of a lot of gas-fired generation. The price of natural gas was conducive to developing gas-fired generation and, and pushing out less efficient fossil fire generation. And then we had the advent of uh, solar and wind development and the accompanying tax credits. And that could all be developed in place with the existing transmission grid. So economically, timeline-wise, I think generation became the focus and sort of the lower hanging fruit than transmission lines. Building transmission lines right now under the current regime, statutory and regulatory, is complex. It's hard to get uh, approvals to go over property, especially if you have to go over private property or maybe even if you have to go over state land. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, doesn't have authority under the Federal Power Act for condemnation like what FERC enjoys under the Natural Gas Act. And although FERC can cause condemnation for citing a gas pipeline, you've seen how difficult that is. Well, add to all that difficulty the fact that there is no federal condemnation authority for a transmission line, you can see where it's been difficult developing transmission. Um, on balance, I think it can take as much as 10 years to develop a transmission line through the planning, the studying, all the approvals and getting all the permits. So it does take a pretty uh, committed investor, pretty committed developer to tough it out and get through it. So those have been a pretty big impediment to more development. Now, when we're penetrating the market with so much renewable generation, the key to that success depends on transmission. So from my vantage point in the law firm and private practice, I see a focus now by investors being interested in transmission, especially because the Biden administration is trying to create incentives through the Department of Energy, the Department of Transportation to foster that interest in developing transmission lines. So that kind of answers my next question, which is, are you sensing that there is this appetite on the part of developers, regulators, and other stakeholders to really go all in on transmission infrastructure investments? Yes, um, there's definitely a sentiment. It's driven uh, in part by the ESG movement, by the interest in seeing a decarbonized market and the fact that institutional investors want to invest in infrastructure that is not just purely carbon-based, but that uses renewable energy and, and helps with the energy transition or tries to align the investment with expected energy transition. 
There's also the fact that right now our transmission system does not work optimally. There's like billions of dollars in congestion costs that occur in our current system. Uh, I've seen studies that indicate there was congestion costs of nearly $4 billion in 2016, over $5 billion in 2018. And so as we add more uh, renewable energy and we change the, the, the way the network of our bulk power system works, those congestion costs are only going to increase unless we build the network bigger. So we both have incentives in the form of the federal government and state governments wanting to see more renewable and providing grants and loans and in the case of DOT, access to federal highway lands. Uh, in the case of DOE, ability to transact with the power marketing authorities, as well as a demand just based on economics. So I am seeing a lot of investor interest, a lot of developer interest uh, in trying to get new transmission projects underway. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there talking about shovel-ready transmission lines. There certainly exist. But at the same time, there's still a lot of impediment. There's a lot of trouble with getting uh, big transmission lines located. Even when they're going underwater, they can be difficult, let alone when they're going over the top of the land and uh, hanging from those big towers. Sure, and speaking of uh, new builds, do you feel that the current models of these transmission line new builds that are being built right now, are they getting it right? And what can they be doing better? Well, I, I think the, the issue with the design for how do you finance and construct transmission has to grapple with the regulatory uncertainty, the timeline to uh, in-service, and um, you know, the need for credit-worthy customers. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure that the traditional model of having an electric utility, electric distribution utility, pay for a transmission line and, and pay for all the costs and put it into rate base is the most optimal way to develop new transmission lines. I, I tend to believe that the project finance method uh, that we saw such good success with on natural gas pipelines, for example, is a more economically efficient and attractive means. Uh, in, a, in a project finance type of structure, uh, you need, of course, an anchor shipper. You need a lead customer or set of customers that will subscribe to the capacity on the transmission line uh, in a volume for a term that justifies building the project. And, and then if those shippers, those customers are commercial and, and credit worthy, then you can attract the financing to build the project. This was very successful for getting pipelines and other infrastructure built. It fits well with an interest in the public-private partnership model that we see often, uh, but it's important to find that anchor shipper and find somebody who's credit worthy. I happen to wonder if maybe the federal uh, power marketing authorities like WAPA, the Western Area Power Administrator, or BPA, or Tennessee Valley might be one of those anchor shippers, depending on when we're, where we're building the line. Um, you know that the West right now is challenged, facing more droughts and high prices this summer. So that's what makes me think of WAPA, the Western Area Administrator, because there's a lot of federal land, there's a lot of federal transmission. Maybe that could be the anchor tenant 
so that we could have private development of a transmission line. And um, another aspect about transmission lines is under FERC's regulation, they're operated on a cost of service basis and uh, a specified rate of return. So that structure, cost of service, specified rate of return, should be attractive to investors who are like pension funds, institutional investors who are looking for basically a guaranteed return and a manageable, projectable kind of financial model. Uh, Credit-worthy customer paying monthly for the transmission would service the debt and pay back whatever capital investment at the return that FERC's regulations allow. Seems to me like a very constructible type of model. So speaking of FERC, I'm wondering what kind of policies FERC, federal regulators, and then on the state level as well, what they can put in place to get better transmission infrastructure online. So FERC controls the rate of return that transmission service providers will uh, be allowed in their cost of service rates. I think the commission should keep in touch with that and make sure that that rate of return is sufficiently high to attract investment. Right now, I think yield is relatively low, so FERC's rate of return might be attractive, but if we were to have inflation, FERC would need to keep its rate of return in tune with whatever inflation may occur. Um, The Department of Energy has a grant and loan process or, or facilities in place. I think that's very helpful. Having capital from a source like the United States government, the Department of Energy, can be nice, low-cost, affordable capital that will help uh, attract other investors, help ensure that the project can have capital at a price that is obtainable in terms of selling the transmission uh, to long-term customers. In, In many ways, you can think of transmission and generation as the same type of supply Uh, And so new transmission has to compete against the price of generation in the delivery market where the transmission would feed the supply into. Uh, It's not going to be economic if the price of transmission is functionally the equivalent of 50 bucks a megawatt where the market is otherwise supplied with uh, electric generation at 30 bucks a megawatt hour. So you got to be able to basically keep transmission and generation uh, pretty much at parity in terms of the economics. Low cost of capital will make a difference on that. Uh, Another way to help with the price of capital is obviously investment tax credits. Um, There's contemplation right now on Capitol Hill of allowing a 30% uh, tax credit on qualified investments. We have an ITC credit right now for solar. We have a production tax credit for wind. Those have been instrumental for the development of solar and uh, wind generation. I would expect to see the same incentive, same catalyst with regard to transmission. In fact, transmission offers benefits about reliability, hardening the bulk power system, that you could really see the merit behind allowing a tax credit. We might realize like just a national security kind of uh, return on that tax credit investment. So those are the kinds of things that I would look for, especially at the federal level. 
at the state level, allowing utilities to be that customer I was talking about, allowing for um, use of state land for traversing a transmission line. Um, those are other ways where at the state and local level, we can see regulatory and policy responses that would be supportive of transmission investment. So switching gears a little bit, um, turning to Texas, obviously earlier this year, there was a winter storm, it crippled power plants in Texas and the entire electricity grid. Uh, it led to millions without power and water. It was a real disaster, obviously. Can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons learned and how you think this incident will inform the industry going forward? So Winter Storm Uri, uh, in many ways, had a very tragic impact. Um, you had all the economic impact that you're talking about. There was also loss of life. Um, I, I think the number one takeaway is about re reliability and the importance of hardening the bulk power system against weather and against other events. It's also notable that Winter Storm Uri wasn't just confined to Texas and the um, the ERCOT market, uh, that is the Texas wholesale grid, rather the price effects of winter storm Uri in the gas market, for example, were felt as far west as California, as far north as Minnesota, because um, there was such a demand for gas to deal with heating, to deal with whatever electric generation could be fueled with natural gas, that the demand for gas was felt across the country and prices went up everywhere. Uh, to me, a key takeaway here is about reliability. Texas notably does not have a capacity market. It is an energy only market, uh, but it also doesn't have winterization types of requirements. There's now legislation being considered in Texas that would require uh, renewable or intermittent resources to have a backstop of what Texas would call ancillary services, which would be basically a call on thermal generation to back up the renewable generation. I'm not sure if that's exactly the answer, uh, but I do think that action should be taken to winterize, to make sure that things are not susceptible to getting uh, frozen. We have wind generation that operates in the north, that operates in Minnesota, in other places where it's really cold, and we don't have the same types of impact on the electric system that Texas enjoyed. I think part of the issue uh, with Texas is, are they willing to make the investment for that reliability to guard against uh, the impacts of a storm like this? I've seen folks say that this was a once in a 30 year arrangement, maybe once in a hundred year kind of storm. And so how much do you really want to spend on that? I I'm not good at saying whether it's a hundred years, 30 years or 10 years, but I do know that generally speaking, we all depend on uh, reliable electricity and we don't want it to work like say cellular service, right? You want electricity to have 99.999% of reliability because in Texas, the electricity was necessary for purifying water and delivering water. It was necessary for uh, helping keep um, other power plants running, helping heat homes. And there's a lot of tragedy about people dying from uh, from hypothermia, from inhalation, that could have been avoided if we had done more winterization. Uh, 
Um, another point about Texas is its electrical island situation. Um, it's very important to the folks of Texas that ERCOT be subject only to Texas authority and not become subject to the Federal Energy Regulatory Authority because it's uh, viewed as in interstate commerce. There is some connectivity between ERCOT and other adjacent markets, um, and FERC has agreed to disclaim jurisdiction. I think we could see additional interconnections between ERCOT and other markets that would allow a backstop, a safety valve that could help. Again, Winter Storm Uri impacted more than just Texas. Uh, adjacent states were feeling it. So how much of a backstop that could have been in this particular case is hard to say, but some interconnectedness is helpful. It's like, you know, your neighbor has power and you don't. So you can go over there and take a hot shower or get a warm cup of coffee or microwave a meal while you're waiting on your distribution utility to restore your power. The same type of effect I think would benefit Texas. And I expect FERC would find cause to allow Texas to continue to operate under its current regime. That is without FERC authority, but under the, P the Public Utility Commission of Texas's authority. You had a lot of really interesting points, and I just want to push further on this issue for a minute. So I know FERC lacks jurisdiction over ERCOT. Recently, um, Commission Chair Richard Glick, he stated during a meeting um, that FERC was prepared, if necessary, uh, to support the position of new mandatory standards to ensure that electric generators are better prepared um, not if severe weather strikes the next time, but when. When. Do you think FERC can realistically have some kind of oversight in Texas, and should they? So, so um, it's important to think of FERC's jurisdiction under the Federal Power Act in sort of three buckets. There's rate regulation, which uh, FERC has authority over sale at wholesale and interstate commerce of electricity and ERCOT is viewed as not interstate commerce. There's anti-manipulation authority, which FERC has asserted that it has uh, anti-manipulation authority even over transactions that are solely within Texas because the effect of that alleged manipulation can extend beyond Texas's border and that justifies FERC acting to punish manipulation. And then lastly, there's reliability and, and here, FERC's authority um, is plenary. It has the authority uh, and acts through NERC, the National Electric Reliability Coordinator, to set standards by which the bulk power system is operated and set standards about um, what do we do to guard against weather events, winterization, hurricane, uh, drought, whatever weather events there may be. And I think that's probably mostly what Chairman Glick was referring to. I know that there are ongoing investigations by FERC and others about the possibility of manipulation or other root cause analysis type investigations, but um, there could be a change or an update to reliability requirements implemented by NERC that would require more winterization, more hardening against weather events, um, 
obviously that would increase the cost of production of electricity. And, and that's a bit of the, the hard part in the energy only market. In a capacity market, for example, in PJM, after we had the Northeastern polar vortex, the capacity market was updated, required a hardening of all power generation, dual fuel, firm fuel supply, those types of requirements, but it paid generators back in the form of capacity performance uh, payments. And um, it created a system that if you sold capacity and you then didn't perform, you were assessed a penalty and those who performed received distribution of those who had to pay a penalty. So a real economic incentive that I think, and I hope, uh, has hardened the mid-Atlantic region against weather events. In Texas, with energy only, the generators are dependent on scarcity rent. The market design contemplates the price of energy could go as high as the value of lost load. That's how we got to a $9,000 price. But the time, the, the extent, uh, period of time when you are receiving that scarcity rent is very limited. It's not necessarily always predictable, not definitely recurring. So it, it's hard to get these types of forward investments that um, we see in the other markets. So figuring out a reliability requirement that would allow this kind of weatherization, I think that's where FERC and its leadership on reliability could help us all. Um, again, I come back to, although ERCOT is an electrical island, the effects of what was happening in winter storm URI was felt nationwide uh, in the gas markets as well as in the power markets. So everybody in the country uh, is dependent on reliability and has a vested interest in reliable electricity service. Switching gears for a minute, the American Council on Renewable Energy, otherwise known as ACOR, um, and other industry stakeholders, they are advocating for a transmission macro grid, which would connect centers of high renewable resources with centers of high electric demand. I'm wondering whether you support this and what you think would be the most feasible and efficient way to actually get it done. So the idea that we interconnect basically the Eastern interconnect, ERCOT and the Western interconnect has been around for a long time. And, and I, I think ACOR among others is putting their finger on the fact that, uh, as I said, there's um, this situation where uh, the 15 states between the Rockies and the Mississippi River account for 88% of the, the potential for wind generation and 56% of the solar generation potential. But this region is only 30% um, of expected demand by year 2050, right? So an abundance of supply in this region, but it's not well connected to the rest of the country. And this macro grid would in theory help that. Um, I, I see the benefits of that, but I also have concerns about uh, undue reliance on creating one giant behemoth grid. Um, electricity is a unique commodity. It, it, supply and demand must match at all times, and otherwise we get blackouts. And so um, there's definitely advantages in creating those kinds of interconnects and allowing the, the systems to work with each other when appropriate. 
but I, I kind of am more interested in microgrids, kind of going, you know, instead of super large, uh, you know, local and super small, the advantage of microgrids and other types of similar types of technological advances is we move away from a hub and spoke system, we move away from central control, and we have more localized, decentralized uh, activity for generation and load. And it creates basically a cellular pattern for electric generation and load in a way that each can be isolated, uh, in the words of the industry, islanded. And to me, that offers advantages, not just because of weather events or other uh, physical impacts that could lead to cascading outages, but also protects us against malevolent actors. You know, everyone's well aware of the ransomware attack here recently, and um, there have been reports in the past about uh, people trying to attack the bulk power system. I think one of the key ways to defend against those types of malevolent actors, whether they're just um, you know, uh, hacker groups doing it for greed or their uh, rogue countries doing it for adverse political reasons would be using microgrids, decentralizing, making us all work more as a mesh network of smaller, more individualized nodes rather than having like, you know, one key to it all could knock the whole country offline. I, I totally see a benefit in allowing some interconnectivity amongst the grids, but I, I have concerns that um, you know, the bigger the thing, the easier it is to knock over kind of problem. Whereas with microgrids, going smaller uh, is harder to have like a mass impact if you're a rogue actor, a malevolent actor trying to hurt the United States. Sure, that's really interesting. You make a lot of interesting points. And I wanna jump all the way back for a moment to something you touched on earlier and that was the bill um, introducing Congress that would create the 30% um, ITC uh, to help promote uh, construction of you know, larger transmission projects. I'm wondering if you think that bill goes far enough. Uh, you know, I think um, investment tax credit for transmission makes a ton of sense. And like I said, for all the stuff we've been talking about, um, development of transmission could have not only an economic benefit in terms of doing away with those congestion costs that we mentioned, allowing for greater uh, interconnection of renewable resources, including offshore wind, which will require a lot of transmission upgrades. Um, <clears throat> but it can also help guard against malevolent actors. Th there's already a lot of investors who are tax credit investors in the energy sector. Solar and wind have long enjoyed tax credit benefits, and there's a set of investors that understand that market and find that market attractive. And, um, you know, they, there are less and less opportunities in solar and, and wind for tax credit investment. So it could be the right time now to allow an investment tax credit for transmission. And so um, I, I support that. I think it makes sense. I think standalone storage is another area that probably deserves its own investment tax credit. Um, but um, as to 30% or 25% or 31%, you know, I'd have to defer to others who have a sense about the economics of that. 
Um, I think 30% in, in that range has worked successfully in the past. So um, without having the benefit of economic studies about what most attracts investment, I think I'd be comfortable with 30%, but I, I'm just a humble lawyer. I'm not the you know, financial wizard ec economist that could tell you about 30%. But a tax investment credit to spur development of transmission, I think makes good sense, good politics, is good for the country as a whole. Um, building transmission is a jobs act, right? Um, it, it's, we've heard about this with regard to the development of pipelines. The same is true with regard to development of transmission. The more we do to develop a transmission network, the more there are jobs for people to do. And these are gonna be skilled jobs. This is electrical engineering. This is mechanical engineering. This is civil engineering. So these are high-skilled jobs, and they will necessarily be in places where we most acutely feel the need to help on an energy transition. Again, I come back to that geographically in the United States, where there's been a lot of coal production, a lot of coal generation. As we're moving away from that, we're moving toward wind and solar. We want to do that, as the president said, not on the backs of oil and gas and coal workers. We want to provide opportunities for them. We want this to be an economic positive. Well, transmission can be that Jobs Act, can be that financial support for finding these new employment opportunities. Absolutely, and very well said. And I guess my last question, Ken, is looking at current, current and soon-to-be technologies. I'm wondering which of these stand out to you as far as making transmission better and more reliable and more efficient? There are, um, that's a great question. There, there are a lot of technologies underway. And you know, another interesting aspect about the transmission lines is it's sort of like your toaster, right? Like if you put too much electricity through the lines, they get hot and they sag and they become less efficient conductors. So, um, one of the areas, one of the technologies that I'm paying attention to is dynamic line ratings. Uh, right now, uh, every transmission line is given a static rating of its uh, transfer capacity, the ability to move electricity from uh, one point to another. But actually, the physics of that line will change based on ambient conditions. Uh, when it's colder, it can conduct more. When it's hot, uh, maybe the transfer capacity should be reduced because we don't want to stress it out. The 2003 event was because the transmission lines got hot, were sagging, a tree fell on one, and you know, we had the Northeast blackout. Dynamic line ratings can really help manage on a real-time basis what the transmission grid can do and where. Related to that, another technology is power flow control. Um, you know, if you think of electricity as water spilling out on a, in a table, it, electricity, by operation of the rules of physics, follows the path of least resistance, just like water will follow the least resistance. So with power flow controls, you can manage that by putting flow gates in and trying to guide where the electricity goes a little more proactively than just having a bunch of lines and letting electricity flow naturally. Uh, power flow controls can harvest power from transmission lines that are 
oversupplied and bring it to areas where there's undersupply and help keep the grid stable. Um, another technology is, is the monitoring technology, that what the, what the industry calls the topology. Um, just like a topographical map where you see ups and downs in the landscape, the same thing is true with regard to the transmission grid. And here's where computing power can really make a difference, right? Being able to see the topology of the transmission grid way down to even the smallest transmission and distribution lines will help the operator know where there's a problem, help the operator ensure that everything is operating at 60 cycles, that um, there is no uh, loss of frequency or other uh, changes in the electrical condition of the grid that would result in a need to shut off generation. One of the key factors or contributors to the situation in ERCOT in Winter Storm Uri was the loss of frequency and the need to shed load, shed generation to make sure that the grid didn't go into a forced outage, uh, you know, a region-wide blackout, which would be very hard to recover from. So monitoring the topology is very important. Um, the, the, the last technology that I'm particularly interested in is uh, storage as a transmission uh, resource. There's a lot of talk these days about storage as a generation resource, and that makes sense. It's a battery. It can supply energy when called on. You know, we've talked about uh, vehicle-to-grid technology and using batteries in cars as a resource of generation and capacity and ancillary services. But storage can also be used as a transmission resource. An example of that is having two big batteries at opposite ends of a transmission line and charging and discharging the batteries in a way that increases the counterforce and allows greater uh, throughput on um, a transmission line. This is the same type of effect we see with gas pipelines where things are done by displacement. Uh, if, if we can use the storage capability of a battery to allow a transmission line to more efficiently operate, we'll actually be able to push through more kilowatts, more megawatts than we would without the storage devices. And for investors, storage as a transmission resource, again, you're in the cost of service, regulated rate of return. You're not competing in the merchant generation market-based rate world where um, sometimes prices are very competitive and, and returns get pushed down pretty low. So storage as a transmission product, I think is another piece of technology that when deployed widely enough will help us both in terms of increasing the deliverability of electricity, as well as helping us protect against national security threats. But those are the technologies that I'm paying attention to these days. Wow, that's incredibly interesting. And now that you said that, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners will be paying attention too to some of those technologies. Um, wow, thank you. Ken, another fabulous and fascinating conversation. I always love talking to you. I always learn something <laughs> new or a lot of something new. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you'll come back. Alina, it's always great talking with you. I um... I would love to keep talking about all this stuff. It'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about an infrastructure bill in Washington, what comes of that, 
Uh, there's a lot of things happening here inside the Beltway that uh, ideally will benefit the development of transmission in other parts of the bulk power system. So stay tuned. There'll be lots to talk about <laughs> sooner than we know it. Yeah, no, we definitely will stay tuned and consider this an, an open invitation to come on to the NPM podcast. So thank you so much again, Ken Irvin. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you as always. And thank you all for listening. Hope to see you next time. This is Alana Knopp with New Project Media.